Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. I'm Amir Tibon. And as we record, the clock is ticking ahead of President Joe Biden's arrival in Israel on July 13th for his two-day visit, during which he'll also visit the West Bank. From there, he takes off to Saudi Arabia to meet the leaders from the region at the GCC Plus Three Summit, coming in from Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, along with Iraq, Egypt, and Jordan. What are the goals of the president's trip? What can he accomplish? Will it do him any good ahead of the U.S. midterm elections? And will it have an impact on the election here in Israel? To answer all of these questions, we spoke with two top journalists covering the visit, one based in the Middle East and one in Washington, D.C., Greg Karlstrom, Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and Emily Tamkin, senior U.S. editor at The New Statesman. Our conversations with them are coming up. Our guest today is Greg Karlstrom, Middle East correspondent for The Economist, and he's here to discuss President Biden's visit to the region, what it would mean for Israel, for the Palestinians, for the Gulf countries, and perhaps even for politics in the United States. Hi, Greg. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So are you excited that the president is coming to our little neighborhood? I'm not sure excited is the right word for it. Um, still trying to figure out exactly why the president is coming to the neighborhood. Didn't he just provide us with an op-ed explaining why he's coming and all the wonderful things he's accomplished and all the wonderful things that this trip will accomplish? Uh, the Washington Post has his op-ed titled, Why I'm Going to Saudi Arabia. And uh, we don't have anything to report because he's already told us what's going to happen, right? He has told us a laundry list of things that he thinks his administration has done over the past 18 months, which includes... The fact that there was a phone call a few days ago between Yair Lapid and Mahmoud Abbas uh, takes credit for that in the op-ed, uh, including the fact that the Gaza war last summer lasted only 11 days and not months, uh, including the fact that there's a ceasefire in Yemen, including all of these things that really his administration can't take credit for. So it's, it's backward-looking, a lot of it. And then the forward-looking piece about why he's actually coming to the region Barely mentions oil, which is a big part of why he's going to the Gulf, uh, says hardly anything about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is unusual for an American president coming here, and really gives a very vague explanation, I think, for, for what he wants to accomplish on this visit. Greg, you're based in Dubai. You're here with us in Israel this week, which is why we have the pleasure of having you in the studio. And in the past, you were also based here in Israel for The Economist. And I want to ask you, looking from the Gulf, at this upcoming Biden visit and then coming here and seeing the discussion about it in Israel. Do you sense we are going to see some kind of another breakthrough in the Israel-Gulf relationship during this trip, something that will continue the spirit of the Abraham Accords? I don't think it's going to be a breakthrough the way that 2020 was a breakthrough with, with full normalization between Israel and Arab countries. I mean, I think we're certainly on a path to the Saudis normalizing with Israel. I think it's a question of when rather than if that's going to happen. But I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think it's going to happen while King Salman is still alive and still on the throne. And I think for the Saudis, they're already getting a lot of what they want out of this relationship, the security ties, the intelligence ties, the, the hard power stuff that has been building for a decade. And they really don't need Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any other American president to come in and play Shah Khan and bring them together. So that's that's sort of on a glide path as it is. And I think the Saudis look at, you know, they also get benefits from dangling this in front of the Americans. Anytime they say, 
look, we're considering another step of normalization towards Israel. Uh, someone from the White House will rush over to Saudi Arabia and act like a used car salesman. What do I have to do to put you in a relationship today? Uh, which is what Brett McGurk has been doing this spring, going over to, to negotiate this deal about Tehran and Sanafir, these two islands that Egypt gifted to Saudi Arabia a few years ago. So the Saudis, by dragging this process out, I think they can, can continue to extract benefits politically from the Americans. In the op-ed, it seemed like Biden was walking a tightrope between, look how we've engaged with the Middle East and look at all the things that we've done. And on the other hand, he uh, he bragged that for the first time since 9-11, no American troops are engaged in a combat mission here. And I think that some of these steps that we see in the, in the process of uh, regional alliances uh, in the region are because of a reticence of, uh, of America to uh, flex its muscles and wield its power uh, in the Middle East. It is. And, you know, I go back to earlier this year when there were missile and drone attacks on Abu Dhabi, which really sent a, a shockwave through the leadership in the UAE. It was the first time that they had been so directly targeted by the Houthis, in this case, by the Iranian-backed uh, Houthis. And I remember sitting with an official in Abu Dhabi. This was in February or March, shortly after the first round of attacks. And uh, this official was complaining about how America hadn't done anything in response. And I said, well, you know, the White House did send a squadron of F-22s. It sent the USS Cole. Uh, it didn't do nothing. Uh, and this official said, you know, fine, the Americans are sending materiel over here, but what are they doing with it, right? These F-22s are not flying sorties to help us. The USS Cole is not out at sea interdicting weapons that are being smuggled into Yemen from Iran. So I think there's still, for years now, there's been this view in Washington that just sending troops to the Middle East uh, is a show of deterrence and reassures American partners in the region. But if you're not actually using those troops to do much of anything, then uh, it's not actually deterrence. And, and the Gulf states have gotten very nervous about that. When Biden comes here to Israel, obviously he's going to hear from our new prime minister, Yair Lapid, uh, what Israel expects from the U.S. on the Iran front, which I think is going to be very confusing because Israel has not decided for itself what it wants. Are the Saudis more clear about their expectations on this issue when he goes to Jeddah after the short visit here? Will he hear more concrete demands from Mohammed bin Salman on this issue? There's a lot of uncertainty in the Gulf about plan B, uh, about what happens if fine. They, they, for years, obviously, as did Israel, campaigned against the JCPOA. But uh, if the JCPOA is not revived, which looks like the case now, then what happens next? And there's a real fear in the Gulf. I would say it's a, a greater fear in the UAE than in Saudi, that things are going to escalate in the region and they're going to wind up caught in the middle. Uh, there's a sense, again, particularly in the UAE, of how vulnerable they are, you know, if you imagine a situation where Israel attacks Iran's nuclear facilities uh, and there's an Iranian response and the Iranians lob rockets or drones or something at the Gulf states, I mean, people in Abu Dhabi will tell you if they you know, had a couple of good hits on desalination facilities or power plants or something in the UAE, it would cause a, a catastrophic situation within days for the 10 million people that live there. And so... Yes, they've they've been frustrated with the JCPOA and America's reluctance to do anything about sort of Iran's non-nuclear activities in the region. But there's also a bit of buyer's remorse now for having campaigned against the JCPOA for so long because they're realizing there's not a good alternative on offer. That great gift, supposedly, from previous President Trump turned out not to be such a great bargain. 
it was not. Uh, and I think that's that's probably a widely shared view against uh, long security types everywhere in the region here in the Gulf. Everyone now realizing that that being gung ho about maximum pressure was not such a great idea. But aren't we in an odd moment where the U.S. is still pushing the idea of the JCPOA to the Saudis and to the Israelis? And in the meantime, the indirect talks in Doha have been called off. So, you know, how, what kind of a message does the U.S. send on it? I think we're getting to a point. I mean, I was in Washington a few weeks ago and I was sitting with an administration official and, and this person was saying, you know, we're not optimistic about the status of the JCPOA right now. Uh, we think the Iranians are intransigent. We don't think they want to deal but we want to preserve the possibility of the JCPOA. We don't want to to completely take it off the table. And I said, this is starting to sound a bit like the peace process, where we're just going to pretend that this thing is on life support indefinitely, even though there's absolutely no progress. And I got sort of an uncomfortable laugh in response to that. But that's what it's starting to remind me of at this point, where no one has a good alternative to it. And so we're going to pretend that this is still alive. But there's there's no horizon for any progress, it seems. And in the meantime, there are reports that uh, they've achieved basically what they want to achieve in terms of uh, uranium production in uh, in Iran. So, you know, like the, the horses left the barn or whatever the, the analogy is. It has. And it's I think a growing number of people in Washington are, are getting frustrated, even Democrats, even supporters of this administration, supporters of the JCPOA. We've been hearing I mean, I remember talking to Rob Malley back in November in Bahrain and, and him saying we are very close to the point where we can't revive the JCPOA, where Iran will have gone too far in its nuclear work. Here we are now in July, some eight months later, and the administration is still saying we, we haven't crossed that threshold yet, and they won't say exactly where that threshold is. And there's a lot of frustration with what seems like the, the never-ending process here. It's the same thing as the American approach to the two-state solution, basically. <laughs> it right? is. John Kerry saying in 2014, we are about to get to the point of no return, which maybe history will judge as a, actually a serious and uh, um, accurate comment. But today it's 2022 and Biden will come here this week and talk about a two-state solution and warn that the window of opportunity is about to be shut down. And we have to act now because time is against us. In the Middle East, maybe time has its own rules. I don't know how big this window is because it takes years and years <laughs> to close this window. The world's biggest window. <laughs> I want to ask you a bit about the view in the Gulf of the Abraham Accords almost two years after they were signed, right? We are now in the summer of 2022. This all happened in August and then September of 2020. Uh, the leaders of the UAE, of Bahrain, do they look at this two years later as a success story? Are they happy with the results? I think for the most part, they are. You know, I think the in the UAE, there's been a bit of a, a shift in the way this is discussed publicly, where they were so enthusiastic about it in 2020, and, and they were a little too enthusiastic about it, where it did cause some grumbling internally within Emirati society, within the, the some of the expat communities in the UAE. And I think the government realized it was being too ebullient about relations with Israel. And so they've, they've dialed back a bit of the enthusiasm. But on a substantive level for the UAE, I mean, the, the back and forth visits of tourists and businessmen, there's, there's loads of people going back and forth. It's been good for the economy in the UAE. Uh, it's brought loads of Israelis over. You've probably met half of the people you knew in Tel Aviv when you were based here in Dubai in the last year or two. Everyone. I have I have contacts who I used to interview here who are now messaging me out of the blue asking for hotel recommendations in <laughs> Dubai. It seems like the entire country has made the trip over at some point. 
they're obviously happy about bringing these security relationships into the open and being able to openly talk about uh, regional defense cooperation. They're pleased with some of the other business deals that are going on, whether it's in agriculture or cybersecurity. Or, so there is a feeling that what they wanted to get out of this, they've, they've gotten it so far and, and they're pleased with it. So, Greg, you won my uh, Tweet of the Week award uh, when uh, the news broke that uh, Biden would definitely be meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. You tweeted, Biden's Middle East tour shaping up to be like a family reunion stuck on board a cruise ship with all those relatives you hoped you'd never have to see again. I presume that the other relative is MBS. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you foresee Biden managing the issue of meeting with uh, MBS in the wake of uh, all that we've been through regarding human rights, a phrase that we're not hearing very often? often in regard to uh, to U.S.-Saudi policy, and uh, how do you think that that's going to be finessed and perceived on the Saudi side? It's been funny to watch the messaging from the White House over the past few weeks on this, where they keep insisting that the president is not going to Saudi Arabia to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. He's not even going specifically to meet with Saudi officials. He's going there uh, for this international meeting of the GCC countries, Egypt, Jordan, and Iraq. And, you it know, just happens to be in Saudi Arabia. He might drop by. He might be in the area of <laughs> bin Salman, and he might come by to say hello. And, and that's the way they're trying to message this. I, I don't think anyone, whether in Washington or in Saudi, actually buys this messaging. So yes, we're going to have this, I'm sure, very awkward moment where he shakes hands with the crown prince. He will make a pro forma mention of human rights and of all of the things that have been irritants in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I think for the White House, that that is sort of pressing the reset button. And that is we've we've gone, we've pulled the bandaid off uh, to mix metaphors here. We've, we've shook hands with him. We've addressed these issues by raising them in public in Saudi Arabia. And now we're going to sort of move forward in the relationship. And uh, I think the Saudis, they're going to look at that as a victory. I mean, bin Salman will have the satisfaction of an American president coming to him to greet him, to, to bury the hatchet here. Saudi social media, it's certainly being interpreted that way. Lots of Saudis very excited about the prospect of an American president almost bending the knee here before the crown prince. Uh, so I think for the Saudis, even if, yes, there's an uncomfortable mention of human rights when he's in Jeddah, they're going to see this as a political victory. When you spoke, Greg, about the uncomfortable handshake, I was reminded of the famous picture of Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shaking hands on the White House lawn and Bill Clinton having to you know, spread push out his hand. arms <laughs> and push them together. I think in this case, the man who really pushed Biden and Ben Salman to meet each other is Vladimir Putin. Yes. Uh, I mean, the White House, as much as it is trying to insist that this visit isn't about oil, that, that the president is not going there because of oil, and it's understandable that they're doing that because this is not going to cause gas prices in the U.S. to plummet. So I think setting low expectations on that front is probably smart. But this visit would have been unthinkable until February, until the Russian invasion sent oil prices skyrocketing. Shirin Abu Akhla's family has requested a meeting with uh, the American president. Do you see that happening or going anywhere? I don't know if it will or not. I, I think if it does, uh, there's there's very little that the administration will have to say. I mean, that, that report that the State Department put out or the summary of the report that they put out a few days ago, uh, they obviously went to great pains to be as anodyne as they could in that statement. They would like this issue to go away. They really don't want to talk about it. And so even if there is a meeting, I don't see it being a fruitful meeting for anyone. So when Biden does go to Saudi Arabia and eventually, you know, does have that meeting, do you think there is anything he can get out of the Saudi side that he can then present as an achievement back home? Like oil, maybe. Oil, I don't know, anything on the human rights front. I mean, what is he trying to get out of the Saudis in this visit, which is not about Saudi Arabia, supposedly? 
I don't know if he knows what he's trying to get. I don't know if some of his advisors know <laughs> what they're trying to get. You know, it might just be that I, I had a conversation last week with Alon Pincas, our columnist, about the Biden visit, and he had this theory that it's mostly about Putin. He wrote a really interesting article about it, but we agreed between us that it might just be a case where, you know, a few months ago, one of the advisors said, we need to go to Saudi Arabia. And then another one said, oh, look, we can do it in the summer. And another one started working on the booking. And by the time they realized they don't really know what they want out of the trip, it was too late to back out of it. But they postponed this trip, right, because of the GCC. It was originally supposed to be in June. They did. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they went so far down this road of announcing that they were going to do it. And, and I think it was a bit premature announcing it. I mean, I, I really do think, again, it was oil prices shot up, gas prices shot up. Oh, my God, this is going to be bad for us in November. What do we do about this? And, and so they announced this trip. And we've seen them then backpedal where in terms of their expectations for the trip, where there was some messaging in the beginning around oil and the importance of relations with the Saudis vis-a-vis -vis oil prices. And for the past month or so, they've really backpedaled on that. And they're saying, we're not going to talk about oil. We're not going to ask the Saudis to lower oil prices because they've realized that they're not going to get what they want on oil. All right, so it's not even clear what it's about, but maybe there will be some grand surprise uh, when he's there. I want to shift a bit more to our local arena over here. Before uh, coming today to Tel Aviv to record this episode with us, you spent a few days in Gaza. What's the situation that you saw? Uh, this was your first visit in more than a year, right? You, you were last there after the 2021 war in May, and now you've come back. What did you see? It's more hopeless and more despairing than it was last time, if, if that's possible. I mean, it's been, as you said, more than a year now since the war. There was a bit of, I don't want to say optimism after the war, but there was an expectation that there would be some material improvements in life in Gaza since then. Um, and there really haven't been. Uh, you know, some of what was destroyed during the war has not been rebuilt, including the high-rise towers in Gaza City that were destroyed. So it's just rubble that stands there in the middle of the city right now? They've cleared that rubble. Uh, they've taken it away. So these are now empty lots in the middle of the city, but nothing has been rebuilt. Oh, that's even more depressing in a way. There was an expectation that the Egyptians were going to come in and do a big rebuilding effort. They are concentrating that effort on building a new neighborhood uh, not too far from Erez, from the border crossing. Uh, so instead of rebuilding things that were destroyed during the war, they're, they're doing this sort of showpiece project, uh, which they're calling Egypt City. It sounds like instead of rebuilding in the city, they're setting up this new suburb, basically. Very much. Uh, it's a plot of land by the water. Everyone expects that who's going to get homes there, probably well-connected people will get homes there, not necessarily people who were displaced by the war. Uh, you have the Israeli government, which has increased the number of work permits given to laborers in Gaza to come into Israel and work. But you talk to many of them and they say, you know, I got a permit. I went over. I found a few days of work. And then it dried up and then no one hired me. And so people go back and forth every day on these day permits. They spend 50 shekels a day on transportation to get across the border and then they don't get work. And so some of them have said, I've actually lost money by having this work permit. And that is incredibly depressing. More broadly, it's been now 15 years, this summer, 15 years since the blockade was imposed. And I mean, it's a somewhat artificial anniversary to pick 15 years maybe, but you have an entire generation of young people who have now grown up in this, who have never left Gaza, who are at an age where they should be thinking about school, about work, about getting married and starting a family, all the things that young people anywhere think about. And they can't do any of that, right? You go to school, you graduate, 75% uh, of degree holders, young degree holders in Gaza are unemployed. So that doesn't offer you a future. 
Uh, you go to work, maybe you take 20 or 30 shekels a day home, which is enough to pay for food and nothing else. You can't afford to get a house. You can't afford to get married. Uh, so there's an entire generation of people now that just feel like they have no prospect for the future. And one of the many reasons that we've been stuck on anything even resembling progress towards agreement is, and you know, there's a reality and it's also a good excuse for uh, for Israel, is the uh, impossible um, a break between Gaza and the Palestinian Authority. Has the current situation at all moved the lead needle, as far as you could perceive, in the leadership in uh, in Gaza towards some sort of rapprochement that could, that could lead to any progress? Not on either side. No, I mean, on the, the Ramallah side, Mahmoud Abbas is interested in staying in power as long as he can and then lining up what happens after him, making sure that he controls the process of succession. It's incredible that he's still in power in a world where we no longer have, you know, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, half the leaders of the Middle East. Boris much. Johnson. Boris Johnson. Almost, now. yeah. And even <laughs> Bibi, although he might come back. But, but he even outlived Netanyahu. And it's still stuck over there. He's sitting in the Mukata in Ramallah. And there was this meeting with Hania now, but you don't seem to think it's very significant. No, it's. I think they've both reached the sort of annual or biannual point where they need to pretend that they are still committed to the reconciliation file. And so they've flown off to Algiers and they've had this meeting, but nothing is going to come of it. And then in Gaza, there's also really no interest in any sort of a compromise with Fatah. I mean, for all of the, the encomiums to the Palestinian cause that you hear from Hamas, fundamentally, after 15 years of being in power, they too are interested in staying in power. They've realized they like being in power. Uh, and they don't want to relinquish it. And so neither side is willing to budge. And, and as you said, we're, we're no closer to any sort of an agreement. So back to Biden for a minute, um, you know, and his looking back at uh, the period he's been a president. I mean, presumably Trump and Biden had such different policies on the on the Middle East. When you look back on the transition between, you know, from Trump's uh, very bold steps and, uh, and radical steps and then back to Biden, who pivoted back to an Obama-esque policy. Do you see anything having shifted significantly in the region as a result of the change of U.S. presidents? I don't. And part of the reason I don't is, I think, with Trump, sort of separate Trump's rhetoric from Trump's policy outcomes. His his rhetoric was unique. We've never had and may never have a president like him again. But in terms of the policy outcomes that he delivered, I mean, he left the Iran deal. Joe Biden did not show much urgency to get back into the Iran deal when he became president. The blame is not all on him. Of course, the Iranians have have become an ever bigger obstacle to going back into the deal. But, you know, we saw recently a few months ago, it seemed like we were close to a deal. And, and the main roadblock was this question of delisting the IRGC. Uh, and Biden wasn't willing to do that, even though it's a relatively symbolic step. So he's delivered the same outcome as Trump there. Uh, with the Saudis, certainly a different tone. Certainly he's not going to go to Saudi uh, and and place his hand on an orb as Trump did, or join in a sword dance as Trump did, or any of this. It's it's a much cooler relationship. But that was but so entertaining at the time. <laughs> it was all of it was so entertaining at the time. Um, but he's he's gone back to having a fairly normal American relationship with the kingdom. Uh, he promised human rights would be front and center. We're not going to hear much about human rights when he comes here. So he has gone back to maybe a more conventional American policy, but I guess that shows you how much of a common thread there has been from Obama through Trump and now through Biden when it comes to the actual outcomes of American policy. A bit like here in Israel, the fact that Bennett and Lapid replaced Netanyahu didn't actually mean there was some kind of a huge policy break on these issues. Although one thing that I felt a bit optimistic about was the working permits in Gaza and now 
you have uh, told us what it really looks like on the ground. Greg, it was really a pleasure to have you with us today. The last question um, that I do want to ask you, do you think anything good, even small, even tiny little bit could come out of this presidential a visit? A glimmer of hope from this presidential <laughs> visit on any one of the fronts we discussed? And if the answer is no, that's also okay, but we should at least try. I think there will be more Israeli commercial airliners that can fly over <laughs> Saudi Arabia when they're flying east. All right, we'll take it. Greg Karlstrom, thank you very much for coming to our studio today. It was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Happy to do it. Coming up next, Emily Tampkin on what this trip means for President Biden back home. And before he arrives in Israel this week, President Biden still has to deal with quite a lot of trouble back home in Washington. To discuss the president's political challenges at home, we have with us today Emily Tamkin, senior editor U.S. at The New Statesman and host of The New Statesman's World Review podcast. Hello, Emily. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, so Biden is coming here at a time when he is a bit desperate for good news. It's true. It's, he's, he's in a rough um, domestic political situation here in the U.S. The, the one sort of good news that Biden had this week is that the jobs report, the economic forecast that came out um, the week right before his visit was slightly better than expected. But if you leave that aside, it's, it's pretty much been one challenge after another for the Biden administration. And the sense broadly um, for many Democrats is that he, he and his team are not meeting those challenges. And that's in terms of the fight against abortion rights. That's in terms of gun violence in America. That's in terms of, uh, you know, the upcoming midterms and, and attacks on democracy. And there is a growing sense that Biden is just not meeting this moment here at home. So normally a U.S. president would go to the Middle East and, and try to sort of posture, you know, show off their uh, diplomatic experience. Someone like uh, Biden would be trying to show off his experience. But we get the feeling that uh, the U.S. audience back home probably doesn't have a lot of patience for that, that they're so caught up with their own economic struggles and the domestic agenda. There's this very, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of this moment of dissonance where, for example, right after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and then, you know, there were there, and and the, the following week, there were also a series of very controversial um, opinions that came out. And Biden was at the G7 and said something to the effect of, when we show how democracy works, you know, we're, we're bound to succeed. And, and there was this moment in some corners of sort of, are we, are we showing that democracy works right now? So to the extent that Americans are paying attention to foreign policy, which many Americans just are not, they're, they're consumed with their day-to-day -day lives, um, to the extent that, that there are, people are paying attention to foreign policy, I think there's the sense of, you know, you're talking about diplomacy and democracy and stability in other regions in the world, and we have increasing instability at home. So when Biden arrives here, and he's probably going to, you know, at least talk the talk of human rights and democracy and all these values that the U.S., at least in the past, had some kind of uh, dream of promoting in the Middle East, I think it's true a lot of people are going to be looking at it and say, well, what's happening right now in the U.S. is actually not a very pretty picture in those areas. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, this is also a president who spoke often about democracy countering autocracy. 
and, and the importance of human rights and restoring American values after the Trump era, or what, what he defines as American values after, after the Trump era. But this is also somebody who said that, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia should be treated like a pariah after the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and who's, who's nevertheless going to Saudi Arabia. This is somebody who I think has not changed course on Israel as much as some younger Democrats or some on the left might have liked. So I think there's the gap between the rhetoric of democracy abroad and the, and the reality of the situation at home. And there's also, you know, some in his own camp who see a schism between rhetoric and reality in foreign policy. And specifically addressing the uh, the issue of Israel and Saudi Arabia at this time ahead of the midterms when you're supposed to be exciting the democratic base. Do you think that this could actually do damage if he's seen as visiting Israel and not speaking more forcefully about the Palestinian issue and going to Saudi Arabia and meeting with some of these autocratic uh, leaders that, uh, that he spoke out against so recently? I mean, maybe in some... In some corners, I think, you know, there are, for some progressives, maybe that, that will hurt him in the midterms. To be honest, I think that the midterms are really going to be, I mean, barring an unexpected event between now and November, the midterms will really be very focused on domestic issues. But I think you're, you're right in that I don't think that there's any way in which this visit is really going to, like, let's say, let's say he goes and he does a perfectly competent job and he, uh, and and Saudi and Israeli relations, you know, uh, seem to be on the right course. And he says the right things on human rights. And he does everything that he says he's he's going to the region to do. I don't see that that's really going to motivate people to go out and vote for Democrats in the midterm elections. Whereas to your point, if he falls down on certain points and doesn't deliver in the way that those who want to see a uh, Biden really champion human rights would like, maybe that could hurt him with some voters. Here in Israel, through all of the news that we have had to report for ourselves in recent weeks, we have still managed, I think, to get a lot of information on the January 6th investigation in Congress and, and some of the dramatic testimonies that were heard during those discussions. How much impact do you think that is going to have on the election, if at all? I actually have been surprised at how many people have, how many Americans have tuned in to the January 6th hearings. The short answer is I, I don't know how much it will impact the midterms. The, the slightly smarter version of that answer is that it really depends what Republicans do with this information. Um, I think Republicans, Republican candidates have a chance with these hearings, another chance to separate themselves from Trump and sort of retake their party and run as, as non-Trump Republicans and, and so on and so forth. But will they do that or will they be afraid of alienating the part of the Republican base that, that still likes Trump? And that's not just for the midterms. That's also heading into 2024. We'll, we'll see how Republican candidates manage that. Yeah, regarding Trump, I mean, you are the U.S. Uh, correspondent for a British publication, uh, New Statesman. And uh, here in Israel, we see uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's base inside his own Likud party standing by him over in uh, Great Britain. Now we've seen the Tory party turn on Boris Johnson. And the jury is out on what the Republicans are going to do about uh, Donald Trump and, uh, you know, whether in the midterms they're going to run with him or against him and what his prospects are for 2024, to share your uh, your thoughts on whether Trump uh, is on the way out or whether he still uh, will be hanging on to his uh, his power within the party? I think my, my, my guess is that my educated guess is that many Republicans will try to thread the needle because what we've seen for Republicans who have stood up to Trump um, is that they've then said, I'm not running again, because the reaction from their own party is it's too intense for them to keep their their electoral chances viable. Um, I think what we'll see is 
either, you know, we, we saw a good example of this um, last year when Republican Glenn Youngkin won the position of governor of Virginia and sort of kept Trump at arm's length, but still touted his connections to Trump at certain moments. Um, I also think that we'll have Republicans really say, well, you know, January 6th is in the past and Democrats are just trying to distract you from gas prices and inflation. I mean, you already saw that with the January 6th hearings where some said, when are we going to have a hearing on gas prices? And it was like, well, when gas prices try to uh, overthrow uh, the government and, and change the election results, then they, they too can have a hearing. Um, so I think that most will not cast him out. To my mind, one of the interesting questions is whether Trump decides to run again or whether he decides that he's content with the role of political kingmaker. If the latter, then the scenario that I just described where people sort of try to take his endorsement without having him on the trail with them, especially in um, in swing states that are neither solidly Democrat or Republican, we'll see that. But if he does run, you know, we'll have, will we have figures like Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, who many think will run in 2024, and who is, who's been quite a proponent of many of Trump's uh, teachings, what, what will he do? What will that what will that clash look like? And bringing it back to this trip, the one thing he could bring back uh, if he was able to that would help him politically, presumably, would be some sort of a move on gas prices, right? I think that's I mean, I think some people have said, well, you're going to Saudi Arabia because gas prices are so high. The Biden administration has said that this is not what that's about, that, you know, this is about Israeli security and Saudi-Israeli relations. I think most people do think that, that it would be advantageous to the Biden administration if gas prices came down, which just to, you know, just to underscore the point, if if you say that your foreign policy, I think there are some who are looking at this and saying, well, you said that your foreign policy was about democracy champion, democracy prevailing against autocracy. Um, how, you know, if you abandon that to have lower prices at the pump, even though that is what mo- what, what many Americans care about is the immediate and, and the sort of pocketbook issues, um, if you're going to abandon that for gas prices, how robust is our commitment to democracy abroad or at home, really? Emily, we, we've spoken about Trump and the Republican side. I do want to ask you, who do you think will emerge stronger in the Democratic Party from these midterm elections? The more moderate a part that uh, Biden himself for many years, I think, was seen as the, the leader of, in a way, or the more uh, progressive, um, you know, squad a, a part of uh, of the party that um, has been challenging a lot of his policies during the last year and a half? So two answers to that. The first is that I think that when the Democrats, or if slash when the Democrats don't do as well as they might like in the House, these two branches will immediately blame each other for that, right? Progressives will blame moderates, moderates will blame progressives. But I think the candidates to watch um, in the immediate future in U.S. politics are candidates who sort of pick and choose where they're progressive and where they're moderate and where they're consistent is in speaking to the anger that many are feeling at this moment. So, you know, I'm thinking of people like John Fetterman, who's running to be a Democratic senator from Pennsylvania. I'm thinking of people like um, J.B. Pritzker, who is governor of Illinois, a Democrat running for re-election. They're not necessarily consistent progressives, although they speak out on the left on certain issues. But I think both have sort of channeled an energy that that perhaps many feel the Biden administration is not at this moment in American democracy. It's interesting because this is a question that also will impact where the party eventually stands on Israel looking into the future. Yes, I think Republicans are generally very pro-Israel, don't want to criticize Israel. I think that Democrats, it, it, it divides by how moderate you consider yourself and also how old you are. So Biden is, you know, Biden, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. Um, these are people from a... a a certain generation, if you look at polling, not just in the party, but but among voters, younger Democrats tend to be 
much more critical and more and you know more sympathetic to Palestinians and the Palestinian cause than older Democrats. But, but to your point, yes, I think that elections and visits like this one, um, you know, nothing is set in stone, and so it, where the party goes on on Israel is still is still to be seen. Absolutely, and still to be covered both in Haaretz and in the New Statesman. Emily yes, Tamkin, well said. thank you very much for joining us today. It was a fascinating conversation, and uh, we invite our listeners to also check out the World Review podcast that you are hosting. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you, Amir. And thanks to Shani Aviram and Dan Brumer, our producers for today. Election Overdose, Haaretz's political podcast will be back this Friday with updates on what is happening in the endless cycle of Israeli elections. And until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>